Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. In anticipation of Father's Day, this upcoming Sunday, the first segment of today's show is going to be all about movies and dads. I'll be joined by certified dad and movie lover, this official title, Nick Shupa, to talk about uh, movie recommendations for Father's Day, the different ways that dads and father-child relationships are portrayed on screen, and the experience of being a dad and sharing movies with your kids. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by composer Kyle Vector and director Julia Miller to talk about Manual Cinema, a Chicago-based troupe of artists who create live performances that blend aspects of theater, cinema, and shadow puppetry. Manual Cinema is one of the featured artists at this year's International Festival of Arts and Ideas, and we'll talk all about their unique approach to creating quote-unquote live cinema. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Nick Shupa. Nick, thanks for coming on Deep, Fo- Deep, blah, Deep Focus. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Tom. This is uh, awesome. Okay, so uh, I know that we have a lot of movie dad territory to cover, but first, uh, as you know, I did a... a Movies and Moms episode a few weeks ago uh, for Mother's Day, and I was able to get my mom to submit a brief voicemail about what she remembers her mom's favorite <laughs> movies are. It's it's kind of moms within moms within moms. So here I, I got my dad to submit something similar. So we are going to hear a very brief uh, voicemail from my father, Brad Breen, uh, and then we'll jump into our conversation about uh, our own uh, movie and dad uh, thoughts, recollections, whatever we want to talk about. I remember watching Sherlock Holmes movies with my father in the 1960s. We would watch them on the public television station in Boston, and they starred Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes. They were often set in England in World War II, which gave the opportunity for the bad guys, such as Professor Moriarty, to be nefarious agents of the Nazis. My father and I enjoyed on Saturday nights sitting down together and watching those movies. I also remember going with my children and my wife to many a movie when our children were young. And Tom, I remember going with you to Space Jam, Independence Day, Home Alone, and others. But certainly many of the movies that we saw with you when you were young, the lines stick with us. And I'm afraid the ones I remember are the ones that are silly or funny, or adventures. But in any event, movies have been a continuous part of both as when I was a son and for, with my father and as a father with my children. Uh, thank you, Brad Breen, for submitting that. My, thanks, Dad, for submitting that, that voicemail. I certainly remember, you know, I think the first movie that I think of when I think about movies with my dad is Independence Day. Um, I don't know if there's, I mean... The Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum, Bill Paxton movie from the, uh, or Bill Pullman movie, I'm sorry, Bill Paxton, from the mid-90s. I think that I most associate going to those kind of summer blockbusters with my dad. Uh, It was certainly an opportunity to spend some time with him on the weekend, but it was also something to look forward to uh, every week, every Saturday, probably Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening, we'd catch whatever the the new big release was. Uh, And that's probably the the most common kind of type of movie-going experience with my dad as, as a kid. So, Nick, the first question I want to throw your way is, uh, do you remember if your, if your dad was a big movie lover, or did, did you spend much time watching movies with your dad as, as a young one? I would, I would say yes. I wouldn't call him a big movie lover. I would call him a big movie user. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a kind of tool that entertained us and him, and so if it got him out of watching us bounce off the walls for two hours... And also entertained him. It was a good thing to have around. He was also very kind. Um, you know, we had a tradition on Friday nights. We'd go out. We'd re- we'd rent a movie and we'd order pizza, right? And he'd let me and my brother pick the movies that we wanted to pick. And he was uh, he was tolerable uh, on that front. He want the only he asked me to come up with an interesting story about going to the movies with my dad. There was one that stands out. My dad had a very uh, progressive approach to interpreting R rating on films and so i think he thought that yeah you know if you're under 18 you shouldn't see it but you know maybe it's more of a range maybe it's like over 18 you can see it under five you can see it and so he uh he had that tone for a little while i remember watching uh movies in the theater called the fish called wanda when i was very young um and uh, i remember going to see what was advertised as you know a cowboy flick (laughs) 
and being pulled out five minutes into uh, Unforgiven. Um, I don't know how old I was, but <laughs> it was right after the scene where some poor woman was getting disfigured and my dad decided, yeah, we should uh, we should probably get out of here. Let's right. go find something else. I think that movie opens with a prostitute being slashed yeah. across the face. Yes, so. it did. Yes, it did. There was a lot of blood, and I think that was when my dad said, all right, well, maybe we're in the 5, 10, 18 range, and so we'll... Take a break from the R-rated movies. Yeah, you know, we spoke about this when I when I spoke with Babs Rawls Ivy a few weeks ago for Mother's Day. I think that in my household, at least, my mom was always the more kind of adventurous moviegoer. So we would find ourselves at uh, kind of in more uncomfortable situations at the movies than I ever found with my dad. Like yeah. we would go to you know he got game uh, or uh, stuff stuff in that vein. What you know, as someone way way too young to be <laughs> watching uh, that much explicit sex and, and violence and basketball yeah. on screen. Maybe the basketball I was qualified to to watch. But I wonder, you know, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about this as we get into the different ways that dads are um, portrayed in movies. But, um, you know, I certainly have, you know, love my dad and have a great relationship with him. But I think that uh, for dads in general, sometimes the best way to spend uh, time with family members in, in a slightly kind of indirect way, right? It, it's like, you know, the the way that you kind of share family time uh, can be a bit daunting for men of a certain generation to just kind of open up emotionally. And I, th- I think that in our household a little bit, movies function as a way to kind of connect. And movies are kind of infamously these empathy machines, right, where you are kind of immersing yourself in someone else's consciousness sometimes and, and trying to understand how people other than you live. And I think that they're like particularly important tools for dads for connecting with kids when sometimes making a more direct like emotional appeal to a kid is not necessarily part of your toolkit. Um, I, I want to know is, as a dad yourself, how do, how do movies function in your own household right now? Well, so I would say, you know, the attention span of a two and a quarter year old is, is something that we're looking to uh, get to feature length. And so we're not fully at two hours long yet, but we have been showing, you know, Lion King, Finding Nemo, um, you know, some other cartoons that he seems to enjoy. For the most part, it's shorter videos online that he likes. But Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, I certainly, this is a good time to be a parent with a very young kid in terms of movies, right? Because we're, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years into this Pixar, uh, just this wonderful wonderful time of very high quality entertaining uh often animated movies that are perfectly kind of acceptable for kids but also quite engaging yeah. for adults as well and i don't know if disney movies function in the exact same way as when i was a kid i certainly remember enjoying them as a child but i don't know if adults derived as much satisfaction from well it's interesting because we we can now derive a lot of satisfaction from you know we have these improved formats right pixar is coming out with great new movies um but a lot of what is being put out there is, is just recycled content, stuff that came out when we were younger, or maybe it was on its second version when we were younger. And so we can say, oh, yeah, I, I watched that. And I remember that. And, um, you know, movies more than that are a way to, to break, right, in your life, to, to have some downtime. And then the way that you can experience it as a family is after watching a movie for two hours, there's, it's simple to ask somebody, hey, what did you think of that? You know, what did you think of this thing? What did you think of that? difficult lesson that somebody learned and right. uh, now now is maybe more credible because i don't have to tell you not to do that thing you saw that that guy was doing that thing it was bad for him so uh, what do you think of that yeah it's an it's an easy route into both a shared experience and a conversation yeah. um with a kid i'm gonna ask you to get a little bit closer to the mic and sure. now let's um let's dive into some of uh, our movie dad picks because you Nick have done a, an incredible job of doing research for the show. Oh, um, thank you. usually I'm the one who find my, you know I find myself with pages worth of notes uh, before each episode. Um, I got a, a two page spreadsheet from you last night with a top ten list of uh, of movies, movie dads, movies about dads, movies that are relatable to dads. So let's just start jumping into a few of the movie dad archetypes, which we will call them for for lack of a better word. Some of the kind of common ways of that dads are portrayed on screen uh can you just pick pick one from your list and let's let's dive in yeah sure so let's let's go with uh, the one that i feel like maybe once a week and the archetype there is unqualified moronic dad and i think the uh, there there are a few different movies out there that exemplify this but one is that uh, a piece of garbage that Andab sandler put out called big daddy and you know it's just one of these poorly contrived sandler plot movies where you know, a lazy guy does something foolish to gain the heart of somebody that is out of his league and ends up with a disastrous set of consequences. 
blah blah blah. Here you have a, you know, basically a, a large man child raising a, a small child that he's come into possession of, and um, I'm not going to pick on Sandler too much, but it feels like I am out of place as a dad sometimes when I'm telling my kid something that I, I know I would do, you know, like get off of that. That's unsafe or, you know, all the traditional dad stuff. Don't jump on that. Right. And, um, you know, it goes back. It, the only thought I had here in being an unqualified dad at times is that it's interesting to think about where we derive our authority from, you know, it's just sheer size and control of snacks. Right. But more than that, if children were able to realize that they had just as much experience being children as we did being their parents, I think they would they would walk off the job site, right? They'd say, no, we need to reorganize. We need to restructure this hierarchy. You're no longer the authority of me. You don't have you don't have the requisite experience, right? And, I think in you you had a note in your spreadsheet for this title saying that the only advantage that you have as a parent or that one has as a parent is um, you have a size advantage and control yeah. over snack time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was that's that's really it. You know? um, but we do so much to maintain that authority otherwise. And so even though at times you just don't feel like it. You know, I, I'm glad that you kicked off with this one, even though I have not seen Big Daddy, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a gap in my, my movie dad uh, watching history. I do think that this uh, notion of the unqualified dad is a really interesting one and one that comes up over and over again. And even though sometimes uh, that dad is unqualified due to haplessness, as it sounds like is the case in the Stanley movie, but sometimes it's um, due to just this absolute kind of existential fear about becoming a dad in the first place. Mm-hmm. And uh, one comedy that came to mind for that is uh, the Coen brothers raising Arizona, uh, where you have Nicholas Cage playing this, this kind of manic uh, reformed criminal who is about to be the father of, uh, of a stolen child. Um, and there is, you know, he is certainly a dedicated father, but one kind of constantly on the brink of, uh, a kind of existential crisis and that he doesn't know if he is ready for fatherhood, the responsibilities of fatherhood, the commitment to family, the taming influence it will have upon his recluse life. Um, and certainly the Coen brothers capture that manic energy through mm-hmm. the cameras, just, just sort of flying through the street. But uh, another one of my, my favorite movies about the dad who is in kind of absolute fear about becoming a dad is David Lynch's Eraserhead, mm-hmm. um, which is a very strange uh, kind of low-budget movie from the mid-1970s uh, about a guy in a kind of post-apocalyptic um, Philadelphia. And the the whole movie, I mean, it, basically his, his wife gives birth to this kind of alien child mm-hmm. um, that is constantly demanding, uh, you know, attention, food, love, everything and anything, and just kind of sucking the life force from him. Um, I think that the, the, the unqualified dad is an important one in, like, movie history and in, you know, capturing uh, something about, being, like the actual, you know, being a dad and that, as you said before, it's, I'm, I'm not a dad, but I can imagine you never quite feel like, okay, I'm completely ready to be a dad, right? It's always, well, here it is. Now it's time to do the best I can and y- hope yeah, the thing will work out. It's, it's rare that you go through like this revelatory experience at the birth of your child and you say, I'm going to change all my bad habits. You know, that's, it's, it's a transition, right? You know, in, in the, in the first part of uh, being a father, you're more likely to ask questions like, what would my dad not do right now? You know, like I probably shouldn't be doing this. Whereas later on, I, I've, the question is more like, Hey, what would my dad do right now? <laughs> right. And it's, it's more affirmative in that, in that sense. But I would say, you know, the next movie. Yeah. T- so we've got unqualified dad on the have, table. What's t- take me to another, uh, the next one, dad. I think pursuit of happiness has to be on this list. You know, Will Smith does a great job playing the make it happen. Dad, Bonus points for this movie because Will Smith and Jaden Smith, father and son in real life, play it pretty well uh, in, on this film. And you know, he strikes me as one of these one of these dads that's a striver, right? A lot of working parents out there, moms and dads, have trouble balancing, or you know, spend a lot of time trying to think about, hey, am I spending too much time at work? Not enough time with family, vice versa. What's the right balance? Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's something that's that's tough for them to think about. And um, you know, there's there's one scene where, and by the way, Will Smith here has a lot more obstacles than most most dads do trying to get up in the world. I mean, here he's essentially homeless, broke. He's a salesman for these medical devices that no one wants to buy. His wife leaves him with a young child, 
and he's facing all of these struggles at the same time. He's trying to make a career for himself. He's working really hard, lands an account that could be big, finds his way at the 49ers game um, in this private box next to this guy with his son and that guy's son. And he you know, tries to take the opportunity to pursue some business with this guy. And the business guy does nothing to d- let him down softly. just says, listen, you're not going to get any business with me. Just enjoy the game. And you think it's like a big, it's a blow to Smith, right? And it would be a blow to any dad who tried to get that business done. But, you know, he looks over at his son, and this has to be, I mean, I would imagine over the past two years, the highlight of their life, right? I mean, they're at the game, they're doing father-son stuff, you know, one's not working, but he's not really letting himself enjoy it, right? And so it's kind of a FOMO thing, right? It's like these dads work hard, moms too, work hard to get their kids in the right zip code, you know, with access to the right programs because they fear like their kids will miss out, they'll miss out. But if you go to a soccer game or a baseball game, you'll see inevitably one father out there with a sour look on his face, looking down on his, at his phone, checking his email because he's got to deal with something. And so the new FOMO is really like, instead of fear of missing out, it's the fear of missing it, right? Like you're there, you've worked hard to get to this baseball game, but you're missing it because you're still working, you're still doing this other thing. So it's when we're increasingly t- connected like we are right now, it's it's a bigger issue than it was, I think, 10 to 20 years ago. But it's it's a struggle that's that's lifelong or that ages long, right, for a lot of dads and parents out there. One, one thing that I like so much about that pick is how Smith's character, and I haven't seen that movie since it, it came out probably a decade ago now, but... Um, Smith's character kind of has to straddle this line between realizing his own very great personal ambitions and professional ambitions uh, and being a responsible kind of role model uh, and also guardian for his child uh, and how to how to achieve both of those sometimes conflicting requirements in, in that um, how much can you be away from your kid and still be a, a, a legitimate kind of protector, especially yeah. when you are homeless and facing yeah. pretty in- incredible obstacles the uh, the movie that um that i want to bring to kind of pair with this is a, a slightly different type of dad but one where the dad is a kind of role model and a vessel of wisdom in a very kind of challenging socio-economic environment and that's um lawrence fishburne's furious styles and john singleton's boys in the hood from mm-hmm. 1991 yeah, uh, and there's one particular scene that I think most people who've seen the movie will think of when they think of Fury Styles, who is raising you know his son in uh, in a very uh, difficult, violent area of of Los Angeles in the early 1990s. And that's when he takes his son and a few of his friends to look at this big billboard that says "We buy houses for cash," uh, and he points up to it and he says, "Do you know what this symbol means?" Or do you know what the sign means? And everyone just kind of looks a little puzzled. And he says, this means gentrification. This means, you know, there are people looking to buy our houses from our people who live in our neighborhood on the cheap and then push us out uh, so that we can no longer afford to live here. And even though, you know, it, it, it can seem like a bit of a didactic moment in a movie that is otherwise, otherwise grounding in some pretty stark kind of emotional reality, it's one where the father uses, you know, everything at his disposal as a teaching moment, uh, mm-hmm. especially when you're living in such a, a challenging uh, area. You you kind of have to, to take what you can and, and impart as, as much wisdom um, as you can to your kid to help to ensure that you know they can survive and thrive in the way that you have and and that you seek to do in your own personal and professional life um so so we have the uh, we have unqualified we've got uh the role models vessels of, of wisdom but also uh professional strivers and trying to balance uh, between professional and and personal life uh take me to another dad archetype yeah Nick. so i guess the next one's got to be legendary dad right and there there are a few of these you know you have huge historical characters in movies who have had sons and daughters and those characters trying to live with you know living in their father's shadow and competing um and making a name for themselves but this one will take a, a little lighter turn and you know this is the lion king right the the dad here is literally the king of the jungle king of apex predators there and his little cub son is uh, is made to basically fend for himself right after his father passes away. And one thing I'll just say about this movie: it's cartoons. You can get away with a lot more than you can with normal films and casting. Right here, you have 
um, James Earl Jones playing the the line that died, Simba's father, right? And you have Jonathan Taylor Thomas as the son. I don't think there's a film out there or producer out there that would say, you know what, I can play these two as father and son, and I probably won't have to explain anything to my readers or to my to my viewers more than that. They'll just get it. They'll get that they're the same, right? And it and it goes beyond you know the physicality of the two. It's like there's you know in in their personalities, at least on screen, there's really nothing there in common between them. But you know, I think when you look at this movie and get beyond the iconic scene where he has you know, lifts his son like every dad has done at least one time and says everything that you touch or everything that the light touches is yours. Um, you know, I did that and the light was only touching my backyard at the time, so it's not a not a big claim. But I but had to your the, child probably didn't know the difference. Right? Yeah, well he was, you know, still burping. Um and that was his big accomplishment. But you know, when you when you look at at situations like this, when you have a legendary dad either, you know, in film or in real life, you have two things going on. One, you'll always have, as long as it's a healthy relationship between father and son, you'll always have the son striving to to receive his father's love, right? And his and for the father to be proud of him. But more than that, if you have a legendary dad, there's this shadow that you have to feel, you, or you feel like you have to compete with, or maybe that it's it's limiting you, right? And um, I think it can be tough. Uh, with it being in that kind of situation, so I'm I'm striving at least at my home to keep that bar very low by accomplishing very little. Uh, and my wife and I are of, of two different opinions on on whether we should pursue that strategy, but we're we're trying now. So, so I I feel like the obvious transition here uh, we're talking about legendary dads, we're talking about James Earl Jones. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the ne- the logical place here is um, to Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in yes. in Star Wars. Spoiler alert for anyone who did not know <laughs> that it was Luke Skywalker's kid. But I mean, this is a legendary dad in a much more kind of nefarious light. And mm-hmm. that, you know, talk about the actual, you know, the absolute villain for an entire, you know, galaxy. Darth Vader is someone who is the not just the the father of our uh, of our nascent hero, um, but also an alter ego who Luke is kind of terrified of becoming. And so we have the kind of legendary infamous dad mm-hmm. uh, who kind of wreaks havoc and mayhem, um, but also a dad whom the, the hero sees himself in literally. And the scene that comes to mind for me is in, in Empire Strikes Back when uh, Luke is on the, I think, the planet, I looked this up earlier, the planet is called Dagobah, mm-hmm. uh, where he's, he's training with Yoda and he first sees uh, kind of a, uh, a, a vision of Darth Vader emerging from the woods and, and he has his first lightsaber battle with him and then chops off his head, the head goes rolling and we see beneath the mask is not some other unfamiliar face, but rather Luke Skywalker's face looking back out at our hero. Um, and I think that that, I mean, that's something that uh, I'm sure that, you know, all sons and fathers can can relate to especially i mean looking at the history of uh of literature movies any kind of art form that um reverence and respect and kind of awe you have for your dad but also the fear of of becoming your dad is the kind of the death of a salesman (laughs) you know i never you know can cannot be uh that exact person i kind of want to define myself as as the exact opposite sometime but inevitably you know, you kind of inherit the sins or at least some of the powers of the father. Yeah, no, it's one of the fascinating stories. And for, you know, if you want to strip away maybe all the star, the the Star Wars stuff that maybe you don't know because you haven't seen all of them recently, but just picture a guy not really in his dad, not really in his kid's life, um, inherently just kind of an evil dude um, on his, on his side and his work gig. He's doing evil stuff basically. And um, when he does finally see his kid, he cuts his hand off. Like that's a jerk move, right? That's that's a bad dad, and uh, so it goes beyond just the the Star Wars. I think it's a great example of uh, you know what a bad dad can do and pass on. And I I want to sneak in uh, just one more very quick uh, bad dad movie recommendation, and that you know if if Star Wars has that that kind of legendary fantastical appeal, it's you know a bit more of an adventure than an actual kind of. Uh, social commentary. There are plenty of kind of legitimately terrifying dads in the, in the history of movies, and maybe more realistically uh, terrifying ones. And oddly, oddly enough, one of the first movie dads that came to mind when I was thinking of this this genre was uh, 
uh, Rodney Dangerfield's dad in Natural Born Killers, um, which is a very small role and a very, you know, disturbing manic one where he plays a dad in the context of this kind of sitcom reality in which the heroine lives. Uh, And so we see him kind of palling around the house in his, in his boxers and his, his uh, kind of soiled t-shirt and everything he says gets a laugh line as if it's just some uh, sitcom. But in fact, we find out that he is sexually abusing his daughter and, and abusing everyone in his family and his, uh, you know, his actions are what motivate this character to basically go on a serial killing spree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though, the, you know, as with uh, everything in that Oliver Stone early 1990s movie, uh, there's not a lot of realism in the portrayal of, of the character's experience of life. I think that's that impulse of uh, of the kind of sins of the parent kind of driving the child as far away as possible from that action and towards maybe sometimes even even worse actions committed by themselves is something that you know anyone can if not relate to in their own personal experience hopefully not in their personal experience listening um certainly understands looking out at you know news or history of literature or art um so what i wanted to throw in one more bad dad but mm-hmm. to take me take me to maybe a, a another a more uplifting dad or what well, take, take me to another dad archetype yeah. sure I'll, i will say that probably the most iconic dad movie that that i can think of um is field of dreams and um you know there was we'll, we'll call this archetype ghost dad right because it, it comes in in other forms right there's ghost dad comes back from the dead or maybe dad's just gone but somebody's imagining him and you know, if, if dad comes from off screen to kind of advise somebody um, or play some part, that's that's kind of ghost dad, right? So, first thing I'll say, if this doesn't if this doesn't make this the ultimate, you know, dad movie, I, I, I don't know what will. But Dwyer Brown uh, is the guy who played Kevin Costner's dad in this movie. You don't really see him until really the last five minutes of the movie. Comes out of the cornfield, plays um, a game of catch with Kevin Costner, right, and he is he's done hundreds of films and, and plays, but for his five minutes here, this was the most memorable for for his career. His dad died a month before filming this, before him playing a father, coming back to see his son. Um, he also wrote a book called uh, uh, If You Build It, and it's billed as being about father's fate and the field of dreams. He's basically collected stories since this came out in 1989 of fans coming up to him and said, hey, you, when you played this, um, you played this role, you, you made me think of my dad. And he's been collecting these stories and he's published them. I just bought it for my dad for Father's Day, so feel free to go out there um, and get it. Sorry if I'm ruining a surprise dad here, but you know, it's a great movie for a lot of reasons. You know, We rented it probably 30 times growing up, and uh, there's a powerful scene near the end of the movie when... Um, you know, Kevin Costner, uh, at first he, he doesn't let on that he's this guy's son because the, the guy is young and he doesn't, maybe doesn't want to mess that up. And it made me think a little bit about the times that we had when we were dads before we were dads, right? And whether or not, you know, you want to share necessarily all that with your son. It's, a, it's, a, it's our own time, right, before we, we get to be dads that we're kind of restricting a little bit in certain in certain areas and you know you present a revisionist history of of your life that allows you to be a little more of an authoritarian or an you know earn the authority that you need to be a dad um and so um i i really enjoyed just just thinking about their interaction but at the end the 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 score here is really powerful you guys got to watch this part where kevin costner asks his dad do you want to have a game of catch and it's probably the one of the most moving scenes related to dads that I've seen in film. And yet, you know, I there I want to throw in two comments on on the ghost dad uh, trope. I agree that this is a very powerful scene, but I I just watched it uh, a few minutes before um, coming into the show, and I think that ghost dad is a particularly appropriate uh, kind of descriptor for this character because I think the power of that reunion comes from the vast majority of the movie, uh, kind of having his absence felt so strongly, right? This is not a character who kind of weaves in and out of the story, but rather one who has passed away, who Kevin Costner is kind of looking to both save his home in Iowa by by building this baseball field, but also 
uh, connect to through this these kind of this apparition of the Chicago White Sox um, showing up to play. But it's through the the kind of anticipation that the movie kind of builds and builds and builds over the course of its first kind of ninety five percent that lets that final scene have such a strong emotional impact. And to have him, you know, to have. There, there's such, um, there's such kind of sweet innocence to Costner's. The one thing that he wants to do with his dad is play catch, yeah. um, and to see how much baseball means to him over the course of this movie, you realize that that's not some kind of diversionary way to spend time, but a way that, again, going back to how maybe dads use movies uh, in general, it is a kind of indirect way to connect in a very kind of emotionally significant way with a child. Um, I, 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 I had a related kind of dads before we were dads um pick mm-hmm. and that is back to the future <laughs> maybe the mm-hmm. ultimate dad before your we dad pick where it's more of a son's perspective on a parent's relationship but you have um you know marty mcfly going back in time to make sure that his parents uh, get together and ultimately uh, um you know get give birth to him and, and make sure that he exists in this world and i mean that movie is wonderful on so many different levels but it really captures the shock that children experience at the realization that parents existed before you yeah. existed, right? yeah. as you were just saying, right? That that you are not the, the beginning. It instills a certain kind of first shock and then humility to realize that the world existed before I came into this mm-hmm. world. Um, and I think those two movies capture it um, pretty well. Uh, we're, we're running low on time, so maybe we have time for two more okay so take take me to another uh a dad archetype sure so i think one has to be on the list it's called big fish and i will uh, just lazily call this archetype the big fish dad and you know albert finney plays the dad ewan mcgregor plays the son uh albert finney is essentially on his, his deathbed recounting stories to his son as his son is you know has an impression of his dad as just a storyteller and somebody you know who blends fact and fiction. And he's trying so hard to separate the fact in his dad's stories from the fiction that he loses the point that, hey, you're really just supposed to be spending time with who's ever telling you the story. I mean, that's half the fun of these stories. And sadly, you know, or others might argue, you know, happily, his father is vindicated at the end of the movie when there's a funeral for him. And all of these larger-than-life characters come um, to the funeral and validate his dad's story. Like, oh, there was a Siamese twin that my dad knew, or there was a nine-foot man, and oh, okay. And the way that the, that Albert Finney tells these stories, I mean, there's just a rich Southern, you know, just a rich, colorful storytelling tradition in the South that this guy honors. And um, it these stories are tough. You know, they're they're built to be sublime. It's tough to pick fact from fiction. But I think the the lesson here for me was, hey, Stories can suck. They can really suck. This radio show can suck. But hey, we're spending time together, America. <laughs> so we appreciate you dialing in. Be, I couldn't put it better myself. But you know, I mean, talk about, I know I keep returning to this idea of indirect connection between dads and kids. Talk about the maybe one of the more emblematic examples of that with Albert Finney. The only way that he can communicate with his kid, who's played by Billy Crudup in, in Big Fish, is through telling these tall tales about mm-hmm. his own accomplishments, his own fears, um, what he thinks, you know, qualifies as a good and meaningful life and what he hopes his child to accomplish. And most of the movie, you're right, is, is the son trying to overcome that indirect approach, right? He wants a more frank conversation about what his dad's life was actually like. And what I find so moving about that ending is that not only have we, you know, gotten to partake in all all of the joy and wonder of the dad's adventures through his stories over the course of the movie, but at the end, we get the sense that the son has kind of internalized that that kind of myth-making element of his dad Mm. at the funeral. Who knows if, if this is actually what he has seen in the world, but he's come to accept that these stories are kind of as important a part of his dad's life as any uh, any truth or actual, yeah. you know, actual experience of the world, and I've you know that is the connection between the father and son kind of as in in on display mm-hmm. uh, right there. Um, it, it's you know it gets to the point where it's like, hey, does it matter if it's a memoir or if it's a biography? You know, it's if it's a great story, people will, people will read it, and you'll want to tell it to your kids. But right? another example of a dad kind of setting the bar impossibly high for mm-hmm. his his kid to to both 
be like his father or maybe surpass his father in his accomplishments. I mean, I love the montage of Ewan McGregor playing the younger version of Albert Finney, kind of making every single like heroic high school sports play where he's scoring the winning touchdown, yeah. he's hitting a home run, he's, he's, he's talking the ogre out of the cave and <laughs> out of the city. It's just every single thing is um, another impossible achievement for a kid to have to live up to. Yeah. Um, do you have one more movie dad archetype for us before, before we go uh, to a break? <sighs> yeah, I guess the um, last one here might be Taken. And I think people can argue that uh, this this should be this should be here. I, I would call this guy Liam Neeson is definitely the tough guy dad in this one. And you know, for background, this this guy's an ex CIA agent. His daughter goes off to Europe uh, to travel with some friends, gets immediately kidnapped, and um, by the end of the movie, thank you. I will I will thank ahead of time. Movie body count. Do you want to guess how many people? Uh, were killed just by Liam Neeson in this movie. You you included in your spreadsheet, oh, so I don't. Okay. Ask, but I think it was in a couple dozen. Yeah, uh, thirty-two actually. <laughs> Thank you for so reading so closely, Tom. <laughs> um, and so it's you know you think about it, you're like all of these. It would be so great to resolve all the problems in my life like Liam Neeson does. You know, maybe not by killing as many people, but you know, you think about the problems that your kids have or will have in their life. And, you know, when they're little, you can fix a lot of them, right? But when they get older, a lot of it's on them for them to fix. And that can be, you know, pretty gut-wrenching for a parent who wants to help and wants to fix problems for their kids. But it's, you know, a lot of it has got to be on them. And so, you know, why this is relatable or why this is likable is because, hey, this should be one of those situations, but Liam Neeson takes over and, you start to think, oh man, he visited some pretty dark vengeance on some bad dudes. I would love to do that in my life, just in maybe some more legal way. You know, maybe maybe it's possible. I want as as my last movie dad pick. I want to throw the the kind of inverse of the impossible uh, effectiveness and efficiency of Liam Neeson and Taken, and that's um, Richard Dreyfuss's Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, <laughs> which is a debt. Which is again one of the first dads that I thought of when I thought of this. Uh, this theme. And here is a dad, an electrician who has a uh, kind of otherworldly experience in which he sees uh, a few flying saucers and the rest of his his life in this movie is committed to reconnecting with with those aliens, um, regardless of what kind of devastation it wreaks upon his family. And I mean, one of the one of the most emotionally affecting scenes in Steven Spielberg's entire uh of movie catalog is that scene the dinner table scene when neary is kind of sculpting uh devil's tower out of mashed potatoes and he's played at dinner and you see you know he's so obsessed with what will ultimately be the location where he meets up with these aliens uh and that he is he's so distant even though at the same table so distant from everyone in his family and he looks up and he realizes how everyone must be perceiving him and he starts Mm -hmm. to cry and we see a uh, kind of two shot with uh, Neary uh, in the foreground and then his son in the background and the son is crying yeah. as well. And even though this may not be the most uplifting of dad portraits um, to end with, I find it as, as I've, I find it a, a very meaningful and, and true one to my understanding uh, of fatherhood in that this is a constant uh, balance you have to achieve between being your own person and realizing your own ambitions and you know trying to achieve a, a stable and happy and successful life and then also you know being committed kind of uh, without any reservations to everyone in your family and I think in closer times of the third kind we see someone who is ultimately unsuccessful at that we see someone who cannot achieve that balance and it is a, a really difficult thing to do but I think that Spielberg manages to capture the a lot of the dad types that we've talked about the dad who's not ready the dad who maybe still acting like a child the one who has professional ambitions um who's trying to impart kind of teachable moments to his kid uh, while also protecting the kid and uh even though he he may not end up where a lot of dads want want to end up i find that a, a very true to fatherhood representation could do we have time just for the to list the honorable mentions please yeah okay so um, honorable mentions, I think, have to be um, Despicable Me. You know, that, that that's something that comes on and my, my wife just reschedules our day just to make it happen. Watch that. Um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You know, Vacation could have been on there, but I think the Christmas Vacation does a great job showing how dads can just stress everyone out 
in their never-ending pursuit to create memories and just become, you know, cartoon caricatures of themselves in the process. Um, maybe a, a bit of a surprise on this list, but Blow, I think Ray Liotta does a great job being Johnny Depp's dad there and Johnny Depp showing that even though he's basically invented the U.S. cocaine market um, or, or is the kingpin there, um, he still, despite being that powerful, comes back and just wants his dad to be proud of him and risks a lot just to spend time with him. And then lastly, uh, Interstellar, great, more recent movie with Matthew McConaughey and uh, Mackenzie Foy. Um, I would encourage other people to see it, um, but it, uh, it, it depicts, I think, what I would call adventurer dad. You know, there are a lot of dads and moms out there, too, that pursuing you know causes bigger than themselves you have a lot of people in the the armed forces you have maybe guys who just spend a lot of time away from their kids for for work there are guys on or and women on oil derricks you know on uh on merchant marines and uh vessels that spend a lot of time away and this this can kind of be related to that i i'm i'm not going to explain these you'll have to check these out yourself but my uh, honorable mentions go to uh fences denzel washington's movie yeah. uh about a kind of working class garbage man in mid-century Pittsburgh who, kind of like in Big Fish, he is as capable of telling tall tales about himself and setting impossibly high standards uh, for himself, uh, for all of his children to try to live up to and to rebel against. Um, and also Tree of Life, uh, the movie by Terrence Malick from a few years ago about you know Brad Pitt plays a Texan father who kind of sacrificed all artistic and professional ambitions in his own you know youth uh, in order to start a family and now holds his own kids to those uh, standards that he was not able to achieve kind of living vicariously through your kid's dad. Um, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sure. chatting, chatting about dads. Um, listeners, I hope that you check out some of these dads and maybe, you know, uh, watch, watch some of these movies on father's day. Um, but yeah, coming up, uh, well, Nick, thank you for coming on the show. So it's been sure. a pleasure to have you here. Tom, thank you for having me. Okay. Coming up next, we're going to jump right into it is an interview that I recorded with, uh, Kyle Vector and Julia Miller of Manual Cinema. I recorded this earlier this week. Uh, Manual Cinema is a Chicago-based uh, kind of artistic troupe that uh, creates performances that blend aspects of theater, cinema, and shadow puppetry. And they will be performing uh, next Monday through Thursday as part of the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. Uh, the first question that I asked Kyle was simply, uh, tell, us, tell us what uh, Manual Cinema does and what you do for this troupe in your own words. In general, I think I'd say that we, we make live uh, films, live animated films. So if you come to one of our shows, um, you'll see a big screen above the stage. Um, and if you just watch that screen, it feels like you're watching an animated film um, in shadow. Um, but then if you look just below that, that screen, um, you're seeing the entire production being made live on stage. So all of the shadow puppetry is live. Um, there are um, actors in silhouette that are interacting with the shadow puppets. Um, there's a live music ensemble. All the sound design is cued and mixed live. Um, so we really, we think our work adds a, a sort of a theatrical element to film, and we, uh, we work in the sort of language of film. So most of our work doesn't have um, dialogue or has very little dialogue. Um, and we're instead using the language of film. So, you know, a, a close-up means we're having an, an introspective moment with a character. Um, a far shot means that we're setting up a location or a scene. Um, everyone sort of speaks this language, and we think of our work as um, speaking it. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I'm so, bef- um, before yeah. I, if, if I, I just want to interject for a second, I, I want to get to um, Julia's role as well. But, you know, I, I've heard, I've read a lot in, in interviews you all have done and on your website about how this is uh, kind of live cinema. And I'm so interested in, in how you all use the, you know, film vocabulary in a live kind of theatrical context. But I also, I know that one of the um, kind of key bits of kind of what makes cinema, cinema is is editing, uh, which is kind of taking uh, not just all of these different uh, perspectives and angles and kind of approaches to a shot, but also the way that you stitch the, those images together to kind of, you know, conjure up meaning from the relation of images. And I wonder if that is, is that an important part of like, I'm, I'm sure you're not dogmatic about what types of cinematic vocabulary you want to adhere to or not, but does, uh, does that concept of montage at all play at all into your understanding of adapting cinema to, 
to manual cinema or is that something, um, I don't know, independent of what you're able to accomplish on stage through these shows? No, it's definitely something we think about. This is Julia here. Um, so we're always consciously trying to adapt the cinematic vocabulary into the medium, which is like part of its challenge and, you know, the joys of it is like when we can successfully figure out how to do a rack focus on an overhead projector or, um, you know, we use pans, we use double and triple exposure. Um, and we also try to, um, you know, like emulate films that we've seen. So we watch a lot of movies and get inspired by them and then try to adapt, you know, that vocabulary into our production. Um, but yeah, the, just those simple techniques are also something we, we do. And then we're also playing with genre. So a lot of our shows are also um, different types of genre of films. Like Ada Ava is definitely inspired by Hitchcock. It's just sort of like New England Gothic tale versus like Lula is um, takes place in the desert. And, we, you know, there's vocabulary from Wes Anderson that we've borrowed and tried to translate into the medium. Um, but, yeah, what's also unique about our shows is that the actors and the who are the puppeteers are not only manipulating the images and puppeting the puppets, they're also live editing the show. So they're also on the faders, working with music and sound design, you know, incorporating um, um, incorporating how we come in and, in and out of images. Um, so when I say fader, it's like the paper that's on top of the projector that lets the light out or keeps it dark. And so they're playing with how, you know, how we fade in and out of the images, and that's also part of our storytelling, like what the hard cut is versus the soft fade versus the double exposure. So we're yeah. playing with all those things. Um, could you, t- well, actually, um, could, and what, what is your, I, sh- I should have asked earlier, what, what are your particular roles in the troupe? Um, yeah. Julie, Julie, what do you sure. do, and, and Kyle, what, what about you? Sure. So um, I'm on the visual team. So I'm a puppeteer and a puppet designer, and I also direct some of our shows. I'm the director for End of TV. Um, and we're, out of the five artistic directors, three are sort of the visual puppet slash narrative side of things. And then Kyle? Um, I, I, I work more on the sound and music side of things. Um, so for this show, um, me and one of the other artistic directors, Ben Kaufman, uh, wrote all of the music. Um, and in this show, um, we, we also wrote the original story that and I did. Um, usually, I mean, when we're working on a new show, one artistic director sort of brings an idea um, for, the, for a show. And, and um, we then work pretty collaboratively. So usually there's, there's like an original screenplay written, but um, all of us have a say in the writing, the sort of narrative. Of, um, of all of our work, the show included. You know, we've, and part of our process is that. Oh, sorry. No, no, please. Explain more about. Yeah, I would, I would love to hear more so about. Part the of process. Process. Oh, sorry. We um we start with sort of an outline, and sometimes that's you know more like a screenplay, and sometimes it's just sort of bullet points of what happens in the story. Um, like this happens, and then this happens, and then we take that text and we create a storyboard. Um, so that's like a shot for shot of how um, we get from each scene and then also like what's happening in each scene. Like then we cut to a close up and then we pull out and we cut to a far shot and this is what's in the scene. And the storyboard is what we use to then create and design the puppets. And then we also use the storyboards to stage um, video demos of all the scenes. Mm. So we take the the storyboards, and we create a video demo, which goes to sound design, um, and then we try to also figure out, like, each stage of what the story is doing. Because we are adapting text into this visual visual format that doesn't have dialogue, we sort of learn each phase of the process, like, what's reading, we start fleshing out what are the visual motifs, um, what's the character design, and then also just sort of tightening the story on each phase. So there's a lot of iterating that happens um, because it's sort of we're also needing to do a lot of devising because once we get on our feet, we start to really see what's reading and what's clear versus what needs more um, clarification or more setup. Um, so there's a lot of sort of changes that happen each phase of the process. You know, I, I think that's such an interesting uh 
kind of tension between um, iterating over the course of a pretty long kind of creative gestation period and then the actual performance, which I'm sure you have to have uh, locked down pretty tightly in terms of the way that uh, different kind of actors' movements uh, sync up with the movements of the cutout images, with the music. Um, and that's, you know, I, I don't think that's unfamiliar to the world of cinema either. You know, there are directors like uh, Mike Lee, who are infamous for kind of improvising uh, dialogue around a story over the course of a very long period with actors. And then once you get on set, um, you kind of stick exactly to to what you came up with kind of word for word. I wonder if that is that a um, a, a challenge, a, a rewarding challenge to have to meet or a, uh, a, a burden that you are confronted with. Uh, each show the, between you know the, con- the the kind of freedom that you have during the yeah, creation that's a great question. It, it oscillates between feeling like a burden and then feeling like good it depends on like the day I think um, <laughs> because it's so technical and everyone is working so much in tandem like what you do as a performer and a musician is like so impacting like everyone else's timing um, because, like, you know, you're getting a puppet, someone else is getting your fader and setting the next thing, then, like, as soon as you're done, you're, like, running up to do live action. Like, every, it's very much a team on stage, and um, we do have to set super technically, like, a very repeatable set of actions. Um, but we are trying to, like, in the rehearsal process, devise what the best version of those are, so they change a lot um, until we kind of find, like, the best, like, essence of each, you know, gesture and what's, like, the sort of most efficient and elegant way to tell, you know, the story of each moment. Um, and that can be really challenging because the actors have to hold a lot of the different versions in their heads. So we're, like, you know, doing so much repetition with variation that at some point we just have to, like, you know, run the show a bunch. And once you run the show a ton of times, like some of our older shows where we've, you know, done them, like, every day for a month, like, that feels really good because it feels sort of like a fine-tuned machine and everyone knows what we're trying to hit. But there is a, a little bit of a technical challenge with the new productions of trying to just, like, get us to that point where everyone, like, knows what they're supposed to be doing when they're doing it. Um, and because, again, like, once the production is set, it doesn't... There's, like, minutia things that change inside of it because of, like, you know, they're humans and the timing is will be a little different. But in general... Like, the actions that everyone is completing, it's like a very specific container that we've designed that they're, you know, executing the same every night. But it does change a little bit night to night as well. Hmm. Kyle, I wonder if you could speak to the role of, of kind of music in these productions as a composer and a sound designer. And I, I, we've done a few kind of episodes of, of my radio show about kind of experimental animation. And I, kind of, I feel like the history of experimental anim- animation is one of uh, kind of investigating how, um, how to like uh, set up music and images or soundtracks and images in a way where they don't necessarily kind of correspond one-to-one, but one is almost always commenting upon the other. Uh, And you kind of have to have both sides of your brain kind of thinking in parallel fashions in order to comprehend not just, um, you know, how one kind of provides a backdrop for the other, but how one is kind of pushing the other forward. Is is music in in these shows something that is... uh, more of a, uh, I know I see the word immersive a lot in the descriptions of what manual cinema does. Is it a way to just kind of immerse the audience in this kind of creative world that you all are making? Or is it a way of kind of constantly challenging and, uh, and kind of pushing the bounds of what is happening visually? Yeah, I would say, I would say both. Um, I would say we do both uh, those things. Um, and it really just depends on what kind of story we're telling, what, what kind of story we're trying to tell in each individual scene. Um, so I think, I think doing sound and music for a company like Manual Cinema uh, that doesn't use dialogue, um, I mean, in most films and, and plays, really, um, I mean, dialogue is the predominant sound that you're hearing. I mean, I mean all, the, all the sound design is lower than the dialogue, usually the music, too. So... Um, without that dialogue, sound and music really have to step up and fill that void and um, be hyper-expressive. So uh, I joke that it's, it's, it's both like the funnest job ever because um, there's this new importance on, on the sound and music in the show, but it's also terrifying because there's this new importance on sound and music. 
Um, so uh, we find that um, each sound, the, the sound of each scene has to be hyper-expressive. So the sound of the door opening um, into a shot has got to tell us how the character's feeling and what the, what the scene is trying to do. Um, it's got to give us a lot of information um, that dialogue would otherwise give us. Um, and the same with music. Um, I think we think about uh, sound and music sort of as the same thing, um, or they, they, they serve the same function and they, they kind of support each other um, in our work. Um, and our sound design, uh, when you say immersive, and when we say immersive, um, obviously we're, we're trying to imitate cinema with our work. And so the sound systems that we use are um, surround. So all of our sound design is designed um, for a surround sound system. Um, so the speakers behind the audience and in front. And in doing sound design for a medium like ours that's very two-dimensional, um, I think one of the roles of sound is to make that world three-dimensional. So, for example, when a door opens at one of our shows, it opens across the entire room. Um, so you really feel like you're you're in the room with that door. Um, we use a lot more canning, a lot more movement around the room in our sound design than than normal cinema. Um, basically, for that reason that that we need to to really give the work a sense of space. Uh, we need to locate the characters um, in a place um, and locate the audience in that place too. So, for example, in, in one of our shows, Ada Eva. Um, one of the characters spends a lot of time in, in her living room where there's a, this, this old clock on the wall. And the clock plays a, a pretty important narrative role in the piece. Um, and the clock is, is behind the audience. And, and the sort of room sound is all around the audience. So as an audience member, you feel like you're sitting in the room as the character. Um, and so I think that's what, that's what we're talking about when we talk about immersive. Um, mm-hmm. We're really trying to put the audience in the world with these characters. And the music kind of acts as another character, I feel like. It can be sort of narrating the tone and emotional weight of the scene, um, or it can also help clue you in about... Um, it actually does a lot of the storytelling for us, as well as um, the images. Um, and I, I in the industry specifically, um, it's a little different than, than most of our other work, because... We conceived of it originally as a, as a song cycle. So we started with um, a set of songs. I mean, we started with, with the narrative, but um, before the visuals were made, um, a set of, of songs was, was written and uh, demos were recorded. So um, the puppeteers went into storyboarding and building, having both a story and a, um, a, a set of songs. So music plays an even more important role, as I would say, in this piece. Um, and there are lyrics. Um, a lot of the lyrics, uh, the lyrics are definitely related to the story and are sort of speaking about and as some of the characters. Um, but in writing them, uh, we, we used a lot of, um, I mean, the show uses a lot of, of commercials and advertising and it's sort of about TV and we'll get into that. But uh, we used um, actual quotes from advertisements and from QVC to sort of like picked out snippets that related to the story and use them as lyrics. Hmm. That, yeah, I mean, I, um, I noticed that you all, I, I mean, your work has kind of manifested itself in a variety of different formats. You've worked in music videos, museum exhibitions, feature-length yeah. cinematic puppet shows, site installations, and I think that you're, you're kind of getting at in describing uh, this kind of song cycle initiated approach for the end of TV. The next question I want to ask, which is kind of what... Um, what stays the same in, in each manual cinema production and, and what changes? I mean, do you find your, uh, your approach to this kind of melding of theater, shadow puppetry, and cinema um, changing quite a bit depending on the format in which it is ultimately produced? Or um, do you think that the end of TV will be, uh, I don't know, a, a recognizably kind of manual cinema experience in the same way that some of your um, previous works have been? Great question. I mean, we are using, for all our live work, we are using overhead projector shadow puppetry. Like, that's in every kind of live production that we do. And then on top of that, we've started to experiment with layering a multiple, like, multiple camera sites, like a GoPro live feed with, like, you know, a different type of puppetry that cuts between the shadow puppetry. 
Um, and same with our video work. We're still working in silhouette, but um, we're able to, like, develop the technology a little bit differently. So, or film. So, you know, in theater, we have to execute each shot in a very specific amount of time. So we're limited about how complicated something can be because there are only four performers. There are only three or four projectors. So we have, you know, more limitations in our live work and how quickly we can get in and out of an image and how many people are available to, like, execute a shot. In video, for puppetry, um, we're able to experiment with much more complicated puppets because we really just have to get one take. So in that way, we're, like, developing the puppet technology a little bit so that we can, you know, make something that's really complicated and needs three people, but we just need to get one shot of it. Um, So for visuals, like, we do get to do different stuff depending on what the project is. Um, But I think, you know, there is a shared aesthetic, I would say, between all our work, and we're also always really interested in telling a good story. So narrative is also always kind of in the forefront of our minds for all the projects that we do. And um, I, I would also just add that um, for end of TV specifically, um, Julia, so we have a we have our shadow puppetry set up that you would recognize if you saw one of our, our other shows, Lula Del Rey or Ada Ava. Um, but then we have this, this new camera uh, GoPro site um, that is sort of, it functions sort of like a mini TV set. Um, so the, the puppeteers um, are like trading out costumes. Um, you know, one actor is playing uh, George Bush in like a campaign ad, and then he's in a sock and boppers commercial, um, and then he's in like he's Steve Urkel in Family Matters. Um, so um, that was a really fun thing to sort of discover and play with mm-hmm. in making the show. Uh, with this, this additional GoPro site that acts like a sort of like mini TV studio. And it's fun to play with in contrast to the shadow. So every time a character in the... Sh- in the majority of the time we're watching um, shadow puppets and actors in silhouette interacting with the shadow puppets, but every time that they watch TV, we cut to the GoPro and we cut to what they're watching, and that's what um, that's what's captured by the other camera. So we are getting to see... Um, you know, actors' faces, which is really different for us, and also the puppets are more photographic because they're not made to be in silhouette, so it's a different style of puppetry as well, um, which has been really fun to play with. You know, I, I think that, that it's a actually a nice transition to the, the last question I wanted to um, ask of you two, which is uh, kind of getting, getting at that... Uh, um, Again, that, that tension between abstract and representational art in the history of kind of animation and experimental animated cinema and also in puppetry. Uh, and also, the, I mean, I, I think that a lot of uh, you know, people who, um, when they first hear about you know, manual cinema working in puppetry, they'll probably think of someone like Jim Henson, maybe his film work in like Labyrinth or, uh-huh. or Dark Crystal. But I think also m- more recently, one of the first filmmaker that came to mind as I was pre- preparing for this interview was, um, was Charlie Kaufman, uh, who, who's working like Dean John Malkovich and most recently in Anomalisa um, uses puppetry to really, it's, I mean, cinema is an art form kind of notorious for convincing uh, audiences that you're watching reality and Kaufman has a way of like kind of lulling you into a false sense of reality and then having a very violent kind of rupture with that where you realize that this is a totally artificial existence and uh and quite a, a disorienting and kind of alienating one and I wonder if I mean for an for manual center where you're combining all these different art forms but you're ultimately working with both live actors and you know explicitly artificial um kind of puppetry I wonder uh, you know, how much, how much of the artifice do you like draw attention to? Do like, how much of that can you play with in your, uh, in your approach to telling any given story? Um, and how, and how does that, that change from show to show? Yeah, it's definitely something we think about. Um, like in puppetry, you have to try so hard to build like a strong reality. Cause like, there's no gravity with the puppets. So you have to like, even just a basic thing about of like walking a puppet on the screen, like you have to you have to do a lot of work to establish um, each shot and to establish what the reality is, and then it's really satisfying to be able to break it. Like you know, puppets can do a lot of things that we can't do with the actors, um, 
and we like to play with layers of what we are hinting at. Like in one of our shows um, about uh, Lula Del Rey, we have these um, this music, this country music duo that the main character falls in love with, and she like tries to find them, and then when she actually finds them, they're these like giant. 2D puppets in the show and so we sort of like use the medium to sort of comment on her reality and also like break what we had established as like you know we've been treating them as these like 3D people the whole time and then to show sort of like their two-dimensionality we like actually physicalized that by revealing like that they were just puppets so that's definitely something we've played with in the medium same with the end of tv the idea that the real world is in shadow and then the GoPro is something that you see so much more detail where when you watch TV, it's like, it's like so real, it's fake. It's like, which we're trying to play with as far as like how we represent TV, which like are these like layers of reality just when you watch something like the set that you watch is like so fake, but they light it in such a way to make it look like a living room or um, the idea of like being inside of the camera is something we're also playing with as far as like a motif in the show. So it's definitely something like the medium can explore and each show sort of has a different question sometimes that we can play with in sort of like revealing the mechanism. And then just as far as like just experiencing the show, we are like revealing all the tricks to you. Like we're on stage doing it and even though you could just watch the screen, the big screen, which is like the final image, um, we feel like it gives you more agency to sort of engage with the production and that we want you to ask how we're doing stuff. We want you to think about how we're creating the images as well as um, experiencing them. I would also I would also just add that, um, Julie mentioned a little bit, but um, I think there's, in any of our live work, there's always a kind of meta-narrative going on um, in that, you, you know, you're, you're watching this film and you're feeling these feelings through these characters. Um, but at the same time, like, at literally the exact same time as you're, as you're watching the film and feeling those feelings, you can look down and see that it's just a piece of paper um, on some acetate. So I think there's always the kind of, uh, I think watching our shows, um, you're sort of doing two things at once. Um, you're you're sort of figuring out how we're doing it. You're you're watching the mechanism and you're you're watching the finished product. Um, we hear about that a lot from uh, from audience members. So that that's a really interesting aspect of the work. Well, Julia and Julia Miller and Kyle Vector are two of the artists behind Manual Cinema, which will be premiering its latest work, The End of TV. Uh, at New Haven's International Festival of Arts and Ideas uh, from Monday, June 19th to Thursday, June 22nd. Julie and Kyle, thanks so much for for spending uh, some time chatting with me about this, and I can't wait for the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll see you soon. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.